to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. I'm today's host, Lori Smetenka, Executive Director of the Consumer Voice. We've all heard the stories over the past 18 months about how the lockdowns in long-term care facilities affected the physical, mental, and psychosocial health of residents. Separation from family members and others who provide essential support and assistance to residents resulted in significant decline. As the lockdown continued, we at the Consumer Voice heard from countless family members, ombudsmen, and others about isolation, loneliness, increased anxiety, failure to thrive, and many residents losing the will to live. While the initial lockdown may have been put into place to protect residents, the unintended consequences have been severe. Today, we're going to talk to a family member, Mary Daniel, whose husband, Steve, lives in a long-term care facility. Like other families, in March 2020, Mary was told she could no longer come in to spend the evenings with her husband and care for him. So let's hear Mary's story and how she turned this frustration into an advocacy movement. Hello, Mary, and welcome, for welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So um, as I mentioned, um, I know that your husband is currently living in a long-term care facility. So um, tell us a little bit about your story and um, the fact that, um, you know, kind of the fact that he's been living in this nursing home and uh, what your interactions had been prior to COVID. Um, my husband, Steve, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's eight years ago at the age of 59. Um, so we have been on this road for a little while. About two years ago, I realized that I was struggling keeping him at home, and he was struggling with being isolated in the house. I had a caregiver here with him. I'm still working. I'm nine years younger than he is, and so I was out working and feeling as if I needed to keep him at home, um, but he was struggling with socialization. He was a salesman by nature. It's his career. Um, his personality was perfect for sales, uh, building relationships with, with people, being around people all day long. And I realized that isolating him at home was hurting him, not helping him. So mm -hmm. in July of 19, um, I placed him in memory care and he was thriving, just absolutely loving it. They gave him a, a seat at the front desk. He had a name badge like all the other employees there, and he greeted everybody that walked in the door, whether they were family, visitors, uh, the UPS guy, everybody got a hug from Steve. Mm -hmm. So he was really, really doing well. I would go and visit him after work every evening and get him ready for bed. We would watch TV, watch the same shows that we've watched, you know, we've been married 25 years um, and it was a great way for us to end the day um, every single day together. Um, mm -hmm. And I did that on March the 11th. And on March the 12th, they, told, they called me and told me that I can't come back. And they is the administration from the nursing home. And so that's because as COVID started sweeping through the country and through nursing homes, and we started seeing the impact on residents, how deadly it was for, um, for many residents, um, the federal government and state governments issued orders to essentially shut down um, where visitors were no longer permitted in long-term care facilities. So not only were residents, um, family members excluded, other support people were often excluded, long-term care ombudsmen were not going in, surveyors to a great degree were not going in, essentially residents were pretty much on their own. And so that was a huge change for you and your husband. A huge change. 
So, um, you know, I know that in order, to, in addition to the companionship that you provided to each other while, you know, during your evenings, what other kind of supports um, were you providing for him when you would visit him in the evenings? One of the supports to, to him was really to the staff. I mean, that he was mine when I got there. They could right. sort of cross him off the list. They didn't have to worry about changing him to, you know, into, into shorts and a t-shirt to go to sleep, to getting his teeth brushed. To, I mean, when I would leave in the evenings, he would literally be drifting off to sleep and they could mm -hmm. really cross that off the list. So it, it, I was a huge help to them and being able for them to focus on other residents and not have to worry about him. But mm -hmm. then there was just the day-to-day -day things, you know, of taking care of his room, of being sure he, he likes to lose his glasses. He likes to lose the remote control, you know, it, the light bulbs in the lamps I brought that there's several lamps in his room that I brought from home, you know, keeping, keeping up with things, keeping to be sure, you know, be sure his clothing was all taken care of and that he was, um, I mean, you know, sometimes other people's clothes show up here and sure. there and seeing things that just sort of overseeing being sort of the person who comes in and make sure that everything is in order mm -hmm. and that he is taken care of um, in that way was just a very important role. I felt like I was contributing not only personally to him and to making his room feel like more of his home, but also to the staff that it was really a win-win situation for both of us, for everybody, for me to be there every day. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that COVID really highlighted for us, for me particularly, but for other people as well, is just how much support and care family members do provide when they are there in the facility with their loved ones. Um, I had I have had family members living in long-term care facilities as well. My grandmother, whom I was very close to, and when I would go visit her at the time, I would make sure to go during a mealtime so that I could sit with her and help feed her when she needed help with that. And, you know, I was willing to sit there for 30 minutes to make sure she finished all of the food on her plate um, or until she decided she wasn't hungry anymore, where it's harder for staff people who have multiple residents um, to spend that amount of time per person. Um, and so, you know, when family members were no longer permitted to go in, they lost a lot of that support. Um, and, and I'm sure that's what you find found too with your husband. That's exactly right. And when I did finally get in, I did find his remote control missing, his glasses missing, two of the lamps, the light bulbs were out. I mean, you know, all kinds of different clothes in his room that weren't, that didn't belong to him. And the other residents I could see, there were other family members who literally did exactly what you said, uh, actually went in and fed. There were two sisters that fed their mother every single meal. Uh -huh. um, they were not allowed in and she lost 30 pounds. Um, right. She actually has just died within the last several months. But I mean, those are, the, they don't have the time. They did not have the time to give that personal attention. Uh -huh. So they did their best. I do believe that they tried as hard as they could. Things like getting his hair cut, right. um, cutting his fingernails. Those are the personal things that I was always on top of and wanted to be sure that they were all taken care of and would be willing to do that myself when they were just too overwhelmed to do it all. Um, and so there were things that didn't happen. And right. that's just really one of the reasons. It was real eye, an eye opener when I finally got back in to see all of those things. And I tell people, you know, is, is that neglect that his light bulbs were out? Is it neglect? I mean, he was, I believe he was well cared for, 
but not like I care for him. And right. that's why it's so important for me to be there. No, absolutely. And, you know, I do think, you know, one of the things we know is that nursing homes are traditionally short staffed and that right. even became more a problem during the pandemic as staff themselves were getting sick and unable to um, stay and care for residents when they were concerned about their own loved ones, their own health and safety. So there, you know, there were real issues with staffing. And so that made the problems even worse. We heard a lot of stories from family members, the same as you did, um, about what some of the effects were for the residents who were not able to have that additional help from their loved ones. So they called and told you you couldn't come in. And so what happened next? I called the, the executive director of the facility and said, this isn't going to work for me. We're going to have to come up with, this, uh, with another plan. And I said, what can I do? Can I volunteer? Can I get a job? Tell me what to do. What can I do? And she said, let's just see what happens. It was very early on. Obviously, we all thought we were the 14, 15 days aside right. of the curve, whatever it was back then. And, and we all, you know, just sit tight. Let's, this is going to be over soon. But the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months. And I started getting vocal. I started um, writing the governor, posting so on social media. I wanted to get to the governor. I felt like he needed to hear from me representing other families to say, I mean, my mantra was there has to be a better way. This mm -hmm. is not going to work. Steve is very vocal in the sense that he talks a lot, but I can't understand anything that he says. There is mm -hmm. no conversation between us. It's a physical a bond when I'm there with him. I need to hold his hand. I need to rub his back. I need yes. to give him a hug. There isn't a conversation with me saying, it's okay, sweetheart. I'm not, you know, I'll be there as soon as I can. He doesn't understand to this day, does not know that what that there was a virus. Sure. Um, to this day, he somebody asked me the other day, how did he feel about getting vaccinated? I mean, he doesn't even know there's a virus. So right. he, he, having you know, conversations on an, on an iPad through FaceTime. We tried the window visits twice. He cried both times. I mean, he just could not understand what is going on here. Why in the world are you not in here with me? So yes. I started getting very vocal about it. And I got in, I'm in Jacksonville. I got a local reporter here to start doing some of the story for me, telling the story of isolation and um, we slowly started gaining some momentum there. The, the governor mentioned me a couple times in a press conference. Um, the, real, the real change came in the end of June. At the end of June, when I was starting to get some press coverage, the facility's corporate office called me. They're based in North Carolina and called me completely out of the blue and said, we understand that you want a job. And I said, I would love a job. And they said, okay, we have a part-time job if you'd like it. And I said, what is it? And they said, it's a dishwasher. Uh -huh. And I said, then dishwashing it is. I think actually they didn't believe I'd actually take it. Yeah. I think it was sort of a, you know, I mean, my story wouldn't be my story if I was the activities director. I mean, uh -huh. having to, to work in the kitchen I mean, made the story, you know, a little bit stronger in the sense of I'll do anything to get to him. Yeah. But I have to give them credit for uh, knowing that um, this was a way to get me in and a way for us to really have um, some real bold advocacy for our loved ones. And they have continued. I will say that his his company has continued to work with me and have us work together as a team to make decisions so that 
really we feel like our voices are being heard. Mm-hmm. Um, when when I got the job as the dishwasher and that story was told on our local news, that story went viral. Yep. And um, that's really when the governor um, heard the story and invited me to meet with him uh, finally. And um, appointed me to his task force for the safe reopening of long-term care facilities in Florida. And uh, that's where we really got some traction. And I'm, I'm thrilled to say that we made recommendations about essential caregivers being allowed in. Mm-hmm. My argument was very simple. Why am I allowed to touch him as a dishwasher, right. but I'm not allowed to touch him as his wife? I'll right. do exactly the same things that I'm doing as a dishwasher. And if we all were able to do that, we need to be able to get back in, be very safe. It was very important to me that we educate all of our followers about we cannot be part of this problem. We have to be part of this solution. Mm-hmm. And we and we really were. So he listened to what I said and implemented the recommendations of being allowed to touch. That was a deal breaker for me. Um, I I I'm not in there for a virtual hug. I'm there to actually give him a physical hug and hold his hand and rub his back. And he let us do that starting September the 1st. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great story. And I mean, a credit to you and your persistence um, that you were um, really willing to do anything and, and make yourself heard and known about that. But I will say also to the company that you're, that, you know, was providing the, the care for your husband, um, recognizing that something needed to be done and being willing to talk to you about it. I think that that's really important. Uh, and, you know, one of our mantras certainly has been that um, being willing to communicate and engage with family members only makes things better, um, frankly, from the facility's perspective. The more closed off they become, frankly, the worse it gets because people no just get angry um, and, you know, really are looking for ways to be part of the solution. So I think that that's really um, that's really great that you were able to do that. Um, so they were letting you when you were in there working as a dishwasher, then visiting your visiting, so to speak, going yes. to spend time with your husband. They did. I, my first shift was on July the 3rd of last year. And after five hours of the, uh, the lunch and dinner dishes, my sister, when, when I got the job, my sister said, are they going to actually make you wash the dishes? I'm <laughs> like, no, I'm pretty sure they're going to make me wash the dishes. And yeah. they did. Um, my first day was lunch and dinner dishes to get me trained, um, which I took the job very seriously, by the way. I think it was really important to me that the staff there knew that I respected um, what had been offered to me and that it wasn't, you know, a joke. It wasn't a, I mean, I, I was there to be the best dishwasher that I could for as long as I needed to be there. Uh-huh. And I went out of my way. I tried very hard to, to be, you know, do things I didn't necessarily need to do to be sure that the respect was shown to those that were taking care of Steve. Um, I was really surprised, maybe surprised isn't the right word, pleasantly um, uh, informed that the kitchen was spotless. I mean, the way that to be able to see the inside, to see what was happening in the facility was really enlightening to me and, and, and made me appreciate the facility even more that the way that they did things from that behind the scenes perspective was really educational for me. But I went to see my biggest fear and the, the thing that I fought about the most was, you know, what exactly were we saving Steve from? from right? I mean, he is going to die from this. And Mm -hmm. his best day 
is today. His best day was a year ago. Um, am I going to save him so that he's here, you know, a year from now where he doesn't know me, where he doesn't recognize me, where his quality of life is much worse than what it is today? Because I know that's coming. I yes. see that every day. So I don't need to be with him a year from now. I need to be with him today. Yes. And that's when he needs me the most. And that was my biggest fear was that I would miss this window of opportunity where he still knew me. Um, he still says my name even now. Um, and so that was my really the, the sense of urgency to get back to him right away. Um, and so when I went to him after that first shift um, and I knocked on the door and walked in and his back was to me, I, he obviously wasn't expecting me to be there. And um, it had been 114 days and uh, he turned around and, and the first thing he said when he saw me was Mary. Oh, wow. And so I, I mean, I cried, he cried, we hugged, um, and I knew that I wasn't too late, that I had yeah. gotten back to him in time for him to know that I was still there. When the day he was diagnosed, I call it, you know, the, the first time they said the A word and told him that he had Alzheimer's, I promised him that day on the drive home um, that I would never leave him alone, that I would be with him every step of the way, that I would hold his hand every single day. So he never had to worry about being alone. And for 114 days, I was not able to fulfill that promise to him. Mm -hmm. And it was extremely important, I think for all of us and, and for the, for the patients, for the, for our family members who do get this diagnosis to have that sense of stability and that sense of of love and knowing that someone is going to be there and caring for you can help take away that fear that so many feel regarding this diagnosis. And mm -hmm. it was important to me to honor that to him and to get back to him as, as soon as I could. So after 114 days, I was working two days a week and I, they only allowed me to see him on the days of my shift. Mm. Um, but I did that for two months, was appointed um, in August uh, to the to the um, uh, long-term care task force and Governor DeSantis issued the order on September the 1st for all essential caregivers. That was the day that I also turned in my two-week notice. Uh, I would be, uh -huh. I would no longer need to be going in the back door that I'd now be able to come into the front door and see him actually seven days a week. Sure. Well, you know, I think you've said, you know, a number of important things um, here. And certainly a big part is, you know, what, what were we trying to save some of the residents from? I know that as we talked with a number of residents and family members, and I'm sure you've heard from others as well, they've said similar things as their family members were declining or at end of life, and they were not able to spend the time with them. Um, the isolation uh, that they were experiencing, the loneliness um, and the triggers that that caused were just as deadly for many residents as COVID was. And um, so many, you know, of the many residents have expressed and family members had expressed they would rather catch COVID and be with their loved ones. I mean, it's a horrible choice yeah. to think you have to make that, um, but they didn't want to live that way and be so isolated. And, and that was a real problem for it's people. It's one of the reasons when, 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 I, when, when the story went viral, I started hearing from people yes. and, and realizing that there are hundreds of thousands of people feeling hopeless, helpless, frustrated, sad. I mean, th this grief that we were experiencing, you know, of not being able to get to them. I told many people, it's really worse 
in many ways than the grief of losing them, of them dying. Yes. Because they're gone. I can't get to him. I can't be with him. But in fact, he's not gone. And I'm not able to be that responsible party that I promised him that I was going to be. And so the grief of that was really, really difficult for so many people. So that is why I started the Facebook group. Yes. Specifically named it. Um, it literally, the name came to me in the middle of the night. And I, I always keep a notepad by the side of my bed because I never know what's going to keep me awake and what I'm going to think about and need to jot down. And that's exactly how this happened. We are caregivers for compromise because isolation kills too. Mm -hmm. And that whole name is important because we're not caregivers who want to throw the doors open and be reckless and don't care about what's happening. We're, comprom we're willing to compromise. We're willing to wear the PPE. I mean, I told the governor, I'll wear a hazmat suit if sure. you want me to. Whatever I have to do, I mean, there has to be a way to do this and we will compromise to be sure that it's safe. And I also told the governor, we understand that COVID kills. We're not a group that believes that this, you know, anything other than this is a serious illness. The lockdowns were done with the best of intentions. We didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. And we understand that COVID kills. But we also want the world to know that isolation kills too. Right. And that's really, really important. And I will say again, the governor, he, you know, he just really went out of his way to, to listen to what we were saying. And even said to me on that September 1st, um, said in public um, on that September 1st um, press conference that the idea that some of his actions may have done more harm than good is very difficult for him to accept. And I think regardless of your political stance, to have any leader tell us that and learn from that to say, we did the best we could, but we made mistakes in how this was done and we're going to fix those mistakes and we're going to do better this time uh -huh. is what we all need to hear. It's the same as you were saying, I, I sent an email, I had a conversation today with a, with a uh, director, the owner of a small um, uh, memory care assisted living facility here in Jacksonville. And he sent out a six minute video to all of his families last week detailing what's going on with the uptick. We're in Jacksonville, Florida. We're on fire right now. There's uh -huh. six cases at my husband's facility. We've got, I mean, it, we're in a hot spot. There's no question about that. That communication, I just emailed him a couple hours ago and said that six minute video where you just said those words are so incredibly important to let everybody know that you understand what they're feeling, that you understand their fear, that you're working together as a team. And that's really the way that, that I was with my facility that I'm trying to help people do in Florida, whether it's the operators or even even uh, residents and their families. Uh -huh. um, and then even with the governor and the people that are making these decisions, the more we talk to each other, the more we're educated about what is happening, what are the guidelines, what are the rules, the better off we're all going to be. We have to work together on this. Last week, I emailed the Florida Healthcare Association, which is the largest nursing home association in Florida, and the Assistant Living Association in Florida to say, and got responses from them saying, we need to be working together. What are you telling your facilities in terms of what rules are they following right now? Because we have no state mandates. Uh -huh. So what are you telling your facilities to follow? And let me tell my folks 
you need to learn these so that both people are working on the same guidelines and can understand exactly what they mean so that it makes it better for everybody. And if we do that, we will get through this a lot easier together. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, most, uh, you know, you've been working, you started working at the state level, the work that you've been doing has expanded nationally because people all over the country are having the same issues of not being able to get in. And while we've had guidance from the federal government, from CMS, um, which was very restrictive, they have uh, you know, loosened it a little and allow for compassionate care, what we found is that has been really um, just very arbitrary in how that's being applied across the board. I think there's a lack of understanding whether, it, and it's been very frustrating for people. So there's not been a federal designation for someone like an essential caregiver that has specifically been permitted to go in the way you were able to get in state rule in Florida. Um, there have been a few other states that have passed similar um, requirements for essential caregivers. Um, so the Caregivers for Compromise group, you know, it was a way for your uh, story at the state level to then kind of expand across the country and it lit like wildfire. I mean, you've got a lot of folks across the country who've been engaged with you through that. We do. We have a group in every single state. I mean, this, this is part of the problem is every state is different. Nobody understands. And it didn't take long for us to realize that, that we needed a state group. So we have the national group and then we have a Florida Caregivers for Compromise page so that everybody can come together. And the groups are to do two things. One is to have a place to share our story, to tell the frustrations and the sadness and what's happening and have other people who can understand that with you because we're going through the same thing. But maybe more importantly than that, it's about the advocacy. I mean, mm -hmm. my job I've discovered through this time period is really, I actually happen to be a patient advocate by trade. Mm -hmm. There is something called a a board certified patient advocate. And that's what I do for a living. I specialize in the world of medical billing and I help people in the world of medical billing because it's what I've done most of my career. I'm, I've now shifted that patient advocacy over into this realm because this has obviously become something that I'm passionate about. And that advocacy, what I try to do through our groups is to empower caregivers to boldly advocate for their loved ones. And the right. best way to do that is to educate yourself. I mean, literally my phone, when I type in all of these responses, I mean, people I get, you know, post and all kinds of stuff on, on all of the pages. I follow all the pages. My phone actually types out itself, educate yourself so that you can educate them. That's right. Because they don't know what they're doing. Right. Most of these places, you have such a gamut of, you know, from a mom and pop facility that have just people who care about the elderly or disabled running a place with all the love in their heart who don't understand really these government issued documents to these corporate that are going to interpret them through their legal department that that doesn't necessarily make it true right so you have to educate yourself so that you can go in there and call their bluff because they're going to get it wrong i promise you and when you're able to educate yourself then you're able to say to them, here's this document. And I will tell you in a minute where I tell them to get all those documents, but here's the document. Here's where it says this. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where this is not the right thing to do. If they don't allow you in according to what the guidelines say, then I say to everyone to say just this to them. 
please don't make me file a complaint to blank, whatever that blank is in your state. In mm -hmm. Florida, it's, it's ACA, the Agency for Healthcare Administration. Please don't make me file a complaint with ACA. I don't want to do that. Right. I just want you to follow these rules. And I will tell you the number one place, and I'm not saying that because I'm talking to you today, without a doubt, my number one source of documents and information is consumer voice. You guys have prepared the information that you have prepared, whether it's the question and answers about the CMS guidelines, the webinars, the one hour webinar that was done in April, I've probably posted it 500 times. Uh -huh. It's a great way for people to take a little bit of time, sit down, learn these guidelines. And when you go in there and you, it's not disrespectfully, not in any way ugly, unless you right. have to start, you know, unless you have to boldly advocate explain it to them, show it to them on paper and tell them they're not following the rules and that's not going to work. So I love everything that truly, the way you put it together, the way you present it in all these different formats, I don't need to recreate it. There, mm -hmm. it, would be, it would be silly for me to reinvent what you guys are already doing and you are a wonderful source for people to educate yourself so that you can educate them. Well, thank you for saying that. And, and that's the purpose of why we do it is so that people can be empowered to advocate for themselves because you are your best advocate. Um, the family members are the best advocates for themselves and for the residents. And you can get information about our resources that uh, Mary was mentioning on our website at www.theconsumervoice.org. Um, you can go there and we've got a COVID page where you can get all of the different resources for information, a visitation page where family members can access the fact sheets and the um, frequently asked questions and the webinars um, that folks can listen to, which can help educate yourselves about what the CMS guidance says, and also to develop strategies that you can use to go in and talk to the facilities and respond to them if you do get challenges with respect to that. Um, so I think, you know, as we're looking at um, how do we get folks back in? Um, that's that's really the goal. And um, so we there definitely is advocacy that needs to be done at the state level, um, at the facility level, um, also at the national level, and uh, really looking at how do we ensure that people are not left alone moving forward. We still have the rest of this pandemic. We've got to finish getting people back in. Um, and we need to also make sure that in other health emergencies, people are not left isolated. Um, one of the reports that we saw late last year um, is that there are a minimum of 40,000 excess deaths that have occurred in nursing homes. That was at the end of 2020. Um, and we know that that number is so much higher. Um, and that's the non-COVID related, what they're calling excess deaths, people that have died from other causes, much of which was loneliness, neglect, isolation, anxiety, we are seeing um, some of those issues on death certificates at this point with people who've lost the will to live. And that's unacceptable. Um, Failure to thrive. Yes. That's what we're seeing. Failure to thrive. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, the work that Caregivers for Compromise has been doing has been so inspirational um, to all of us that have been working in this field. Um, I've been doing this work for 25 years, and I've said to folks, I've, you know, 
definitely known that there have been really powerful family voices out there, um, but yours and the group that you've been that you founded and have been working with have just been tremendous. And so um, let's talk about the bill that's pending in the House of Representatives right now, the essential caregivers bill. So talk about that a little bit. Our group in New York has worked um, amazingly hard. Uh, Carla is our leader there, and she has led this group um, with Claudia Tenney, the representative from New York, who is the sponsor of this bill. This is a federal bill, H.R. 3733, which is the Essential Caregiver Act. I'm proud that my congressman is also an original co-sponsor. He jumped on board very, very easily. And, and when most people understand it and see our stories um, up close and personal, they understand the need for this bill. This is a bipartisan effort. It has both Republicans and Democrats already on as co-sponsors. And it basically gives the ability for a resident to name two essential caregivers in the event of a lockdown like we've just experienced to be able to come in and visit as if they were staff, following the guidelines of staff. Very similar of what I did in my way of visiting Steve by following the guidelines that I did as a dishwasher. So we believe that we are part of the solution. I will tell you in Florida, we had zero. When we started our essential caregiver visitation in September, we had zero uptake in cases because we were very careful. And I think that that's a big part of this is taking on that responsibility to know that we do play a role in how we do this. If we can get it done on the federal level, which I do believe that we can get this bill passed, um, then it will over it, it, it will be sort of the umbrella over all of the states. Right. Um, it will cover the facilities that accept federal dollars. Now, I you know people ask me, my husband's facility is a memory care center. It does not take federal dollars. It will not be affected by this bill. But I will then bring back, I know our work is not finished in Florida. I will bring that federal bill to Florida. And I hope by next year that in, in the legislative session next year, we will get a state bill that will match it so that in fact, it does cover um, long-term care facilities in terms of um, memory care assisted living. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, but this is a huge start. As I said, I, you know, this is an umbrella shield that really goes above to kind of pull all of those financial, those federal facilities that get those federal dollars in as just a way to keep this from ever happening again. We have to learn from this experience. As I mentioned with, with our governor, understanding that we didn't do this the best way that we could. And we, are, we think there are better ways to do it. And we wanna be certain that nobody else has to go through this um, this isolation and the pain and suffering that so many have have um, have had to endure ever again, and I think this federal bill does that. One of the projects we're working on right now as a group is we are establishing we're making a book with a page from every single state where we're mm -hmm. highlighting stories of what's happened in that state. My Texas leader Mary Nichols did this in Texas. It was very effective with them getting their essential caregiver bill done there. It's all about the personal stories. We're not here to argue right. the politics of it. We're here to have you look in the faces of our loved ones and see what this did to them. Hear these stories, know the pain and suffering that happened. And when you do that, when you see that, most people, as I said, understand that this was not handled properly and we have to do better. I say all the time, we are the United States of America. When we know better, we need to do better. 
Absolutely. Well, this is an important bill. And again, it's HR 3733. It's um, bipartisan. It's pending in the House of Representatives at this point. And the best thing family members and those listening can do right now is contact their members of Congress and encourage them to co-sponsor and support this bill. All representatives are home for August. Call your representative. Ask for a face-to-face -face meeting. Ask for a discussion with them. They need to know your story. They need to hear your story. And you have a right to sit with them, even if it's with one of their legislative aides. They're the ones that go and report back to them. Um, and tell your story to them. Let them understand the pain and the suffering. We're not here, again, to discuss the politics of it and and. Um, it's all about how this has affected us at a very personal level. Consumer Voice has some wonderful information about the bill out there on, on your website. We mm -hmm. also on the Caregivers for Compromise Facebook page have posted summaries and detailing about our book project. We're going to mail one of these books. We're going to print 600 of them. We're going to mail hard copy book to every single U.S. congressman and every single U.S. senator. Um, everyone that I've ever, that I've discussed this with, and I make a point of talking to a lot of them about it and getting to their offices, they all are supportive if it can be explained to them in a way that touches their heart. Right. And that's what, and that's really what we're trying to do. And, and, and it's a way for every single person out there that's been affected by this, all of us as caregivers, my role really has become someone who empowers caregivers, as I mentioned before, and I, because this role that we have as a caregiver, certainly my role as a caregiver is temporary. Some people's temporary is longer than other people's temporary, but this will end one day. I will lose Steve one day. And I want to be certain when that happens that I look back with no regrets, that mm -hmm. I know that I was there for him when he needed me most, that I was there advocating for him. And when we do that, I have learned through the years when we're able to do that, and it, it really serves as a gift to us. This is such a hard job and it's so difficult. And sometimes we get so absorbed in the day-to-day -day of it that it can be so heartbreaking, but we are giving something to our loved one that is just absolutely so valuable. And in turn, we get that gift back that when this is over, I'm going to walk a little bit taller. My shoulders are going to be held back a little bit higher because I know for the rest of my life that I did everything in my power to care for him. And I Absolutely. want all of us to have that feeling when this is over, that we fought hard and working on this bill, every single person out there, every member of Caregivers for Compromise, every caregiver can help by calling their congressman and talking to them about their personal story don't be afraid, boldly advocate, and you will make a difference, not only for your loved one, but for many, many people in, in just tens of years to come. Absolutely. It will, make, it will make such a difference. And again, you know, it's a matter of bringing essential caregivers in in a safe way that will continue to protect the residents from public health emergencies like we're talking about today. Because as you mentioned at the beginning, no one expected us to be here 18, 20 months later. Yeah. This has really yeah. been something none of us have ever experienced before in our lives. And I think when the first call for restrictions went into place, we all thought it was going to be a week or two weeks maximum. We yeah. never thought we would be in this place. But I think we need to take advantage of what we've learned yeah. 
over this time period and ensure that we don't follow the same path that we did to where we are right now. Um, because not only has COVID been detrimental, but as we've said earlier, the isolation and the effects that have gone along with that just have been deadly for people and we can't continue that. I think one of the frustrating parts for me as a caregiver was the 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 mess of how this was handled and and by everybody and this is I mean absolutely we we are not a political group here we are we're we're hoping you know to get legislative le legislation passed but we are not a political group what we can do though that our politicians are not doing is we can help teach and learn from what we already know. That's right. Um, I can't trust them to give me what the truth is. I don't know what the truth is, you know, and, and we can get into the weeds about arguing over the vaccine and all those different things. What we do know without a doubt is that isolation kills too. And that's what we have to prevent. And that's what we can do in telling our politicians you guys can go fight over the other stuff. I don't care about that. All I know when I'm locked out from my husband, it hurt him. Yes. And it, and it hurt me. And it hurt, I mean, you know, millions of people were affected by that. And we absolutely have to learn from that and never let that happen again. You guys deal with all what you want to deal with, but you need to protect us. You owe us this protection because we know it didn't work. And we know that it was, I mean, you know, I, we know, it, I mean, it just simply didn't work. It didn't right. keep the virus out of the facilities. That's right. The only thing that was kept out of the facilities was us. And we can right. make that mistake again. And every single caregiver out there can contribute to this cause to be sure that it doesn't happen again. That's right. Absolutely. So um, HR 3733, is the bill that uh, we are encouraging folks to contact their members of Congress to support to co sponsor. Um, it is critical that you do that in order to express um, just how widespread this bill is needed. And so we definitely encourage you to do that. We encourage our listeners to check out the Caregivers for Compromise Facebook groups, the national one and the groups for their own independent pages so that um, they can connect and have some community with other people who are also working on all of these issues. And also check out the Consumer Voices website, again, at www.theconsumervoice.org um, to find information about not just the bill that we've talked about today, but also um, resources that you can use um, if you are struggling with visiting your loved one, getting back in and seeing them, things to be looking for if you are um, uh, going back in, um, what even some of the things are you should be looking for um, to see kind of what the condition is of your loved one and uh, maybe questions that you can be asking of them um, to get a better, sen better sense of what they have been um, looking uh, going through during this period. Um, so we would encourage people to get that information as well. So I would like to thank Mary Daniel, who has joined us today for your inspiring story for the advocacy that you've been doing. We're glad to be working with you and the Caregivers for Compromise group the uh, and the other family members that are working on these issues. And um, we definitely hope for some success in getting uh, passage of this bill and making a difference for those that are living in long-term care facilities, not just currently, but in the future to ensure that they are not left isolated and alone again, as they have been over this last year and a half. So Mary, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can share your story with us, subscribe to the podcast, and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Thank you.